You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Every day we plan and save for our futures, but are you taking into account tax strategies when dealing with your investments? I know, it's not something we think about often enough, but you can find ways to save and invest more and better plan for your future. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What do I prefer? Do I want to take the money that I was gonna put toward debt and put it toward these leggings instead? Or is my top priority paying off this debt? And the key is like, you are allowed to make either decision because you are a grown woman who makes her own money and you get to make that decision. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. There is a message around money that I feel like I've been pushing up against for a long time. It is the reason I started Her Money and one of the reasons that women don't save as much as men do historically. What we hear from so many financial gurus is this shame-based framework that puts the blame on us, on us as individuals for making the wrong financial decisions. Homeownership, putting money in a 529, great, you're on the right track. But if you're taking out large sums of debt because you have young kids at home and you wanna go to medical school, nope, that is the wrong choice, try again. This sort of blame-based approach can make us feel like failures for making decisions that we know are right for ourselves and our families. And the problem here is twofold. Number one, shame doesn't work. And number two, telling people that they are completely to blame for their financial circumstances is just false. It's wrong. My guest on the show today found herself in almost $40,000 worth of debt in her mid-20s, and she turned to many of these financial gurus to help pay it down. What she found was that this tough love approach didn't really apply to her or to many of her friends, so she created her own method for paying it down, and now she is officially a millionaire at the age of 27. Chloe Elise wanted to teach her method to other women, so she started a company to do it. Today, she is CEO of the financial literacy company Deeper Than Money. She works with women to ban restrictive spending habits and instead spend in alignment with their priorities, which, by the way, could include a daily afternoon coffee run, as well as their long-term goals. And she is the author of the new book by the same name. Chloe, hey, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for that introduction. That was incredible. Oh, well, you are very welcome. I want to start by just hearing about you and hearing your story in your own words. Absolutely. So I grew up in small town Iowa and really got these hardworking Midwestern values instilled in me in a very young age. I was working whatever job I could from the earliest age that I could. I was 14, 15, 16, and just about working full-time in my summers and part-time during the school year. And I loved this, right? My parents really instilled the value of a dollar, and I learned how to work hard, but I never learned how to actually manage the money that I was making. And so I would make it and spend it and make it and spend it. And then I would have nothing. And then I would say, oh, I have nothing. I have to work harder. And then I would work harder and make more money. And this cycle continued and it continued through college too. But in college, I started having bills to pay. And so I would work really hard and then I would go to the grocery store and my card would decline when I was going to buy groceries and I would leave the grocery store empty handed and then work harder and come back when I had money. And it was so stressful. It was so overwhelming and I was constantly feeling just anxiety and stress around money. And even though I was working hard and making money because, again, I was taught how to make money and I was taught how to work hard, but I wasn't taught about personal finance. I wasn't taught financial literacy. I wasn't taught how to save. So finally in college, I kept having these just overwhelming meltdowns of money is so stressful. What is wrong with me? And I had this kind of come to Jesus moment where I was like, I'm going to figure this out. And like you said in the intro, I went and I was checking out personal finance books from the library at my college. I was Googling how to get ahead with money and I was met with these shame-based tactics of, oh, well, you're just not working hard enough and just give up more things, spend less. Like that is how you get ahead. And so I just felt worse. I was like, oh, well, I'm just lazy. I'm not working hard enough. So then I would try harder and these sacrificial deprivation-based tactics don't work because, I mean, they might work for a week and I would have a little money win and then I would say, screw it, I'm going out with my friends. And then I would feel so much guilt and shame because, again, I had failed And like you alluded to, the reason I had failed was because I'm a failure and I wasn't trying hard enough. So again, I was now caught in this news cycle of these deprivation-based tactics. And that is really where I kind of had my second aha epiphany moment where I was like, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. And it sucks too. It's not fun. This process is hard and this process feels so bad inside. And that's when I really decided it has to be voila, deeper than money. Like it really does. It has to be when we're talking about getting ahead, it has to be more than just what makes financial sense on a piece of paper and what's the smartest financial move. We need to factor in our dreams and our desires and our goals and the things we care about and the people we care about. And that's really where Deeper Than Money was born in this idea of once I started factoring in money psychology and why I was self-sabotaging and what I was stuck on and my beliefs and all of things like this, that's when everything clicked for me. And not only did I start enjoying the process, I started getting way more sustainable money wins because I didn't have this quick win and then burnout. So 
it was so holistic and I, I felt so confident and I felt so excited about money when I just spent so much time feeling worse and worse and worse and just beating myself up. And so again, really the whole philosophy around deeper than money is looking at finances holistically and getting shame out of this conversation around finances. I could not agree with you more. I don't believe that we should judge other people's financial choices. Her money was established as a judgment-free zone for that very reason. And I also understand what you're talking about as far as the building blocks of this. I often say that saving money is not fun. Having money saved is a lot of fun. And so bridging between the two is where the magic kind of lies. You came up with a formula, a cycle breaker, and you break it into a recipe. We love to cook here, so at least I do, so it makes sense to me. One cup of acceptance, one cup of forgiveness, one cup of radical responsibility. Take me through those as sort of tactical steps. How did you get out of the earn it, spend it, feel bad about it cycle into acceptance, responsibility, feeling better? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Acceptance of where you're at, but doing it in a way where there's no shame is one of the best gifts you can really give yourself. Because at that point in my life, first of all, when I signed my name on those student loan papers, I had no idea how much debt it was. I had no clue. I was like, just flip to the last page. Okay, bye. I was like, this is so embarrassing because I had been taught my whole life, money's private. You don't talk about money. And now I'm sitting in the college financial aid office across from a stranger who's telling me, here are your loans. I was like, don't talk to me about this. Don't say anything. Just let me sign and let me run out the door. And so I had signed my name saying, hey, I'm going to take out $30,000 of loans, I didn't even know what debt was. I didn't even know what I was signing up for. And so then fast forward three years, the day that I sat down and logged into my loan, first of all, I had to create an account three years later because I didn't even have an online account because I'd never checked before. So I create an account, I log in, and that was the first time I'd ever figured out how much I had in debt. And it was so scary and it felt like a million dollars and it felt like a hill I will never climb. And so there's so much shame there, first of all. And so the first part of acceptance was just like, I have to actually accept that I owe this, right? (laughs) Instead of this being like this fake far off number. So that was number one. But number two was also the acceptance for where I was at without it meaning anything about where I was headed. And to me, that looked like accepting like, yes, I have $36,000 of debt right now and accepting it in a way that was neutral of just this is where I'm at, not I accept this and I suck and this is horrible and blah, 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 blah. That's not acceptance. That's judgment. And so it was truly allowing myself to look at that and say, okay, this is where I'm at, and it gets to be neutral, and this is just my starting point, and it doesn't mean anything about where I'm headed. So that that was really the acceptance. When it comes to the radical responsibility part that I talk about, a key piece of that is the difference between saying, okay, awesome, this is where I'm at, and I'm holding responsibility for 
this is where I'm at in the sense of if I'm responsible for this, I can change it. The difference, though, is not looking at this from a place of fault, of I'm responsible for this because I suck, because I'm bad with money, because I've made horrible decisions, because all of these things. There are so many factors that go into where we're at with money. It can be generational cycles of where your parents are or the socioeconomic status that you were born into. There's so many factors that are out of our control. And so when I say radical responsibility, I don't mean from a place of judgment of where you are or from a place of wherever you are is entirely your fault and whatever else. There can be so many factors, factors that are unfair, frankly, and that's okay. When I say responsibility, I truly just mean that we can look at where we're at from a neutral place of acceptance And also from a place of responsibility of saying, okay, I am responsible for this in the way of I can change it. And until we take that responsibility, it can kind of feel out of our hands of like, well, it's not my fault that I'm here. But sometimes that can feel a little dismissive in the sense where it's like, well, since it's not my fault, I can't fix it. So when I say responsibility, it's this empowerment. It's this like, I am taking like the reins. I am taking the wheel. And from here, from this place, it gets to change. When you say that, I think you are talking directly to the millions of people who are facing the fact that their student loans are all of a sudden due after three years of being on a hiatus that has offered a whole lot of financial freedom. And a lot of people are scared, and many are feeling like, and this is something that the government has acknowledged, many are feeling like they are not going to be able to do it, at least on the schedule that they have been given. What advice do you have for these folks who are looking at repayment and do have to face it at this point? So the first thing that I would say is to sit back and take a deep breath because so often if you're listening to this and you're like, yep, raise my hand. That's me. That's me over here. Like I'm freaking out. I'm so scared. I don't know how I'm going to do this. When you are in that state, that's fight or flight, right? You're in that state of fight or flight and stress around money. When you add logistics to that It only increases stress and the feeling of being frantic and being nervous and all of those things. So the biggest thing is taking a step back, stimulating that vagus nerve that gets us out of that fight or flight, right? Taking a deep breath and saying, okay, I'm going to figure this out. Who I am is not who I am with money, right? Like I, where I'm at with money doesn't determine where I'm going to go or who I am or how great I am or whatever. My worth is not determined anything by finances. I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to get into a neutral state, which let me acknowledge can be very hard when you're like, ha ha ha, yeah, but no, you don't understand. I don't know how I'm going to make that payment. Just when it comes to thinking about this, wait until you're in a neutral state and then we can add logistics to it. Because again, when you're adding logistics to already feeling stress and overwhelm and in fight or flight, a lot of times what happens is to one or the other on polar opposite sides. One is ignore it. I'm going to forget about it. Whatever. I'll deal with it later. Not my problem. I'm not even, I just won't make the payment because I can't. I'm not even going to look into it. 
Or on the other side, it's obsessing over it. It's all I can think about. I log into my account 50 times a day and I check it and I go over it and over it and over it. And we want to move both of those into a state of neutrality of, okay, where am I at right now? Write that down. What is my payment amount? There are so many people who are right now thinking, I won't be able to make that first payment. And I'll say, okay, when is your exact payment due date and what is due? And they'll say, well, I don't know. I'm like, okay, that's a great place to start. And it can still be true that you don't have that amount to make that payment, but we have to know what that payment is in order to say that, right? So let's figure it out from a place of neutrality of like, okay, let's see where we're at and let's make a move from there. Then we can take that first step, figure out when is my payment due? How much will be due? Okay, then we figured out that amount. What's the gap? How much am I short in this scenario? Okay, what other options are there? Is there a different plan I can switch to, a different payment plan? What are the different options? That's where we can add financial literacy to it. That's where we can add strategy. Or is it, okay, I'm gonna go back to my spending. What do I need to move around in order to make this payment? Then we can add logistics. But if you immediately jump into adding logistics from that place of, oh, what's going on? I don't know what I'm gonna do. It only adds more stress and it only adds, again, it leads to those two like polar opposite reactions. And so we want to get to number one, a neutral state and then add financial literacy and then add strategy. Yeah. And if anybody is wondering or thinking that they'd like to take a deeper dive into the strategy itself for getting on that new repayment plan, the save plan. Take a listen to the bonus mailbag that we dropped with Tara Siegel Bernard from the New York Times. All the details are right there. Very, very easy to follow and prescriptive. And what we're finding is a lot of people are seeing their payments cut in half because they get on this new repayment plan. So there are solutions. When we talk about tactics, we often talk about saving and how much we should be saving. I've been a personal finance reporter now for 35 years. And one of the questions that I get asked most often is, just give me a number. Just tell me how much of my money I need to save day in and day out in order to have some sort of a secure financial life down the road. And so I've done my homework, right? I did all the research. The number for most people is 15%. If you can get yourself on a track where you say 15% from when you start working until you retire, you're pretty much going to hit it as long as you invest that money. And let's acknowledge that life is going to happen. And some years that 15% is going to be 6%, but other years, you're going to get a big tax refund and that 15% is going to be 20 and it'll all kind of work out as long as you aim for things. In your book, you write, rules like this enrage you. What do you want people to do instead? Because if there's a better solution, I would like to know about it. Here's the thing. I think that's a fair metric to give. Absolutely. The thing that I see a lot with clients is that people will take a generic set like that, right? And instead of it being something that's a good benchmark, it'll be used as a weapon against themselves in either sense of the way. Sometimes I can see that used for, I've had clients who they're like, oh no, like I'm good, I'm saving 15% or I'm investing 15% and they could 
easily be doing a lot more. And there's a lot of spending out of alignment, overspending, leaky bank account where there's fees going out that they're not even noticing and all these other things because they've had the mentality of like, oh, I'm doing that. And so while there's other things out of alignment, that's been their focus. And so in that case, if they changed a couple other things to optimize, they could easily be doing more, making things even more in autopilot and more automated and have even better results for themselves. On the flip side, there's people that can see that number and think, I could never do that. So this is not worth it to me. I'm not welcome in this conversation because saving 15% or investing 15%, I'm so far off that. And therefore, I'm so far gone from financial advice. I'm so far behind. Why would I read a finance book? Why would I try to get ahead? Why would I do these other things? Because I could never get to that. And so really, it's not that I think you should stop giving that as a benchmark. When people are saying like, hey, here's a benchmark on average, again, I'm not enraged. I hate when people come to me and they're broken. And again, they're in this fight or flight and they're feeling hopeless because they have assigned a generic benchmark to mean something about them. If you've ever read one of those benchmarks and put yourself on either side of it, that's not personal finance advice, right? That's not for them and say, okay, here's how I need to apply this. But at the end of the day, if someone can look at that and use it as a benchmark and say, okay, cool, I can do this or that, then great. But sometimes benchmarks can almost be like the highlight reel on Instagram, right? Where we're comparing ourselves to other people and saying like, well, she's going on this vacation and he has this car and like, what's wrong with me? Like they're doing this. And and so often there's just so many other things that are left out of that conversation when it comes to what that average looks like and what we need. And so it's not so much of like, we need to stop saying benchmarks in the financial industry. To me, it's more Let's talk about that at a holistic scale and what that looks like. I give in the book an example of two women who they make the exact same salary and they read that benchmark statistic of, oh, okay, I should save 15%. But one of them lives in small town in a rural Midwestern suburb and has very low expenses and was just chilling and is like, okay, I can do that, but could actually be saving or investing more than that. And then the other woman lives in, let's say, New York City, high cost of living, has a couple kids, is paying for daycare, is paying for all these other expenses and looks at that and is like, oh, I'm failing. And both of those women, neither one of them are failing or succeeding. They have completely different lives. They have completely different priorities. They have completely different responsibilities. And so the biggest thing is that these benchmarks, we can't take them to mean anything about us. We can't take them in shame or in that capacity. And instead, you can look at them from a neutral state and say, oh, okay, cool. Like that could be a good goal to shoot for in the next however many years. Right. It's a process and understanding how to make changes in your life in order to get you there is basically the key. I want to talk about boundaries because I know they were important in your own financial journey, but I think they're important in general. There are lots of aspects in our lives where we are fine setting boundaries for ourselves. When it comes to our money, sometimes we push back against those boundaries. So we're going to do that in just a sec, but right now we're going to take a quick break. Hey, Her Money family, here's a fun announcement. Our 400th episode is coming up. Can you believe it? And I want you to call in to ask me 
anything? Do you have questions about your financial life, your retirement, your kids, your house? What about if you and your partner are splitting bills fairly? I want to talk about every single bit of it. So Email us at mailbag at hermoney.com. Send your question, but also send your details how to get in touch with you because we want to get you on the air. Can't wait. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Have you taken into account tax strategies when dealing with your investments? I do it with my advisors a couple of times a year, and so I can tell you. The right tax planning can help you save, but the wrong ones? Well, they can cost you. Are you saving where you could be and taking advantage of strategies that can help you grow your money for the future? With a little advanced planning, you can find ways to save and invest more and make sure this year is one for the books. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule your complimentary wealth checkup. We are back with Chloe Elise, author of the new book, Deeper Than Money. When we talk about setting boundaries, what's the best way to formulate ones that you can actually stick with? I think in order to answer that, we have to first answer for ourselves the definition of a boundary. And in therapy a couple years ago, I was talking about a boundary and I wasn't enforcing it and it's making me mad because they're not respecting it and whatever else. And my therapist said, what's your definition of a boundary? And I was thinking about it. I was like, well, it's something that you give to somebody else to set up. And she was like, well, a boundary isn't for someone else. It's not a punishment for someone else. It's not for them. It's for you. So the biggest thing when we're practicing, like you said, like how do we enforce boundaries? I like to think of it as there's a lot of pre-work that comes with a boundary. And one of the questions we have to ask ourselves when it comes to what is the boundary I want to set here is, am I ready for this boundary to be enforced regardless of other people's response to it? So, okay, let's say you have a roommate or you're living with your partner and you're supposed to be splitting rent 50-50, but they're never paying their share and you always end up covering for them. And so you decide to set a boundary of starting next month, I'm not going to cover their share of rent. They need to cover it. And so you send them a text and you say, I'm not going to cover your share of rent. And then rent comes and you're like, well, it's due. I don't want to get penalized, so I'm just going to pay it. So then you pay it. If you're not willing to enforce that, then you can't really say it because not only are you then not enforcing the boundary, but then your words and your boundaries water down because they weren't enforced. So the next time you set a boundary, not only does that person say, oh, she doesn't really mean that, but you start to say to yourself, I don't really mean that. Like, I'm not actually going to enforce it. And so making sure that you're clear about, okay, how would I enforce that? And what is the outcome of that if it needs to be enforced? What is the outcome if it doesn't need to be enforced? And so instead, changing the conversation and instead of saying, let's say you're the one who pays the rent and they're the one that pays you. So you say, I'm not going to cover your side of the rent, but I'm the one that pays the landlord. So I'm the one that will get in trouble. Maybe the conversation needs to say, hey, I've covered your rent the last couple months and I can't let this continue to happen. 
if you are not going to pay your rent by the first of the month, I'm going to have a conversation with our landlord to where I pay and my landlord, he or she gets the money from me for my half. And then they set it up with you to get your money because the fact that it's going through me is causing conflict in our relationship. And I don't want that anymore. And so if you don't meet paying me on the first of the month, I am going to have a conversation with the landlord so that you are obligated to send that to the landlord. And then the landlord can then sue you or evict you. And I'm no longer the middleman because that's a boundary I'm enforcing. That is something you can enforce. And so having that conversation ahead of time with yourself of like, okay, here's my boundary. And what does it look like? What are the actual steps of that being enforced? And I think the reason it's so important to have that conversation ahead of time is because in the heat of the moment, it can be so easy to go back on it and think, well, I guess I I don't know what that looks like for it to be enforced. And so if you figure that out ahead of time, then you already know, okay, if option A happens and they respect the boundary, great, here's the outcome. If option B happens and they don't respect the boundary, okay, here's the outcome. And it's so much easier to enforce that. What about when the boundary enforcing is with ourselves? When we set a boundary that we want to keep for our own personal reasons, and we're having this sort of fight within ourselves. I'm thinking specifically about spending, and I'm thinking specifically about social media. We pulled a study that said two thirds of Americans believe social media has actually increased overspending. The whole TikTok made me buy it phenomenon. I know that many of the women in your community, but also in mine, say they feel guilty for making non-essential purchases. If we are trying to set up these sorts of boundaries with ourselves so that we can save more, spend a little less, work toward our bigger goals and priorities, how do we set these sorts of boundaries so that we stop sabotaging ourselves? Yeah, that's a great question. And it might sound counterintuitive, but I would actually argue that it's less about setting a boundary with ourselves and more about giving ourselves freedom and flexibility. And I can remember being a little kid and going to the store with my mom and we're going down the toy aisle and I'm like, mom, can I have this? Mom, can I have this? And my mom would say, no, Chloe, put it back on the shelf. You can't have this. And if you think back to that feeling as a kid, right, you're like, it's disappointment. It is discouragement. You're sad. You're mad. Like you had that desire and then you got told no. And so often as a kid, you're thinking like, when I grow up and have my own money, I'm going to be able to buy this. And then fast forward. And now instead of eight years old, you're 28 years old and you are walking through the aisle at Target or you're walking through the aisle at your favorite athleisure store. And what is the voice in your head saying? No, you can't buy it. You can't buy it. It's that same narrative of I can't have it. And what does that feel like when we're told that? It feels crappy. It feels like, dang, I really wanted that. And I'm being told no. And it feels like restriction. It feels like deprivation. And so same thing on social media. But sometimes you don't really want it. Sometimes you only want it in the moment, right? Sometimes we talk about a purchasing pause a lot here on this show, that if it is something you really want, you work hard, there's no reason that you can't have that. But you can't have everything. 
And you have to choose because money is a limited resource for everyone. No matter how big or small your budget is, there is some sort of limiting factor out there. So when that's the framing, how do you work with that? So I do agree with you, but I like to think of it a little differently. I like to almost think of it, and it's a little mind twister. What is that? Brain teaser, if you will, but hear me out. I like to think of it opposite of that. I like to think of it as when I go into a store and people always respond back and they're like, easy for you to say because you have gotten to a spot where you have money. I would implement this when I would have like $100 in my bank account to my name, but hear me out. I promise this will change the way you think about money. So I would walk into the store, let's say, and I would literally tell myself, I can have anything I want. I can have anything I want. Now, your first thought is like, okay, then I'm going to buy the whole store, right? Like I'm going to buy everything. And that's often your first thought, right? Like the first thought is, okay, I'm going to buy anything. But the second thought is like, okay, awesome. You're going to buy every single thing in this store. Incredible. Where are you going to keep it in your house? Oh, well, that would actually lead to a lot of overclutter. Like that would lead to a lot. My closet would overflow. Okay, so maybe not everything. Okay, then what stuff? Well, everything, half of the store. Okay, half of the store. But I'm actually going to try on some of these clothes and they're not going to flatter me and I'm not going to feel my best in it. Well, that's not really an alignment. That's not really something I want. Okay, so so not actually half, maybe a quarter. Okay, a quarter. So I'm going to get this and this. When you give yourself freedom and full allowance to have what you want, When you actually start thinking about what alignment looks like, not just financially, but also with the thing itself, if if I gave you that entire store and again, your goal was to keep it and have it in your house, would that actually be in alignment with what you want? And there are a lot of things in that store that aren't your size or that are your size, but don't fit you well. And so why would you want those things, right? So we keep narrowing it down. We keep narrowing it down. And let's say you get to a couple items, right? Let's say you get to five items that you're like, amazing. But you look at those five items and you're like, I don't have the money in my checking account for those five items, Chloe. So it still doesn't work. Hear me out. I would take it a step further and say, okay, let's say you don't have the money in your account for those five items. You could open a store credit card. You could text your parents and ask for money. You could text a friend and ask for money. You could rob a bank. You could sell a kidney. You could do all these things. Are those great options? No, right? Those are probably not great options. But when you give yourself the outcome, right? I allow myself to make outcome-based decisions. So if those five items, in order to purchase them, I would have to open a store credit card. Instead of saying, no, that's bad. You can't do it. I take shame out of it. And I say, do I want to open a store credit card? That could potentially hurt my credit. Then I have this open credit card. Am I actually going to use that? Maybe there's a fee. Maybe there's this. Actually, it's not really something I want. So that's not in alignment with me. That's not the decision I want to make. Okay, so maybe I don't want the five items because that isn't actually in alignment. Okay, so now I'm narrowed it down to two, let's say. Okay, I have those two now. I really want those two pieces. I'm looking at my checking accounts. And now I'm saying, okay, what's the outcome of purchasing these two things? And then I'm looking and saying, okay, well, I have X amount of money allocated for one of those purchases. And that purchase, it would come out of my paycheck. It would be great. That wouldn't stress me out. I've allocated for spending that. That would be great. But the other one, that would involve me taking the money that I've set aside to pay off debt and instead purchase these leggings, let's say. You are allowed to make that decision as a grown woman of saying, what do I prefer? Do I want to take the money that I was going to put toward debt and put it toward these leggings instead? Or is my top priority paying off this debt? And the key, and that's what I talk about in this book, is like you are allowed to make either decision. 
because you are a grown woman who makes her own money and you get to make that decision. If your decision is the leggings, that is completely fine. But then you are not paying off debt as fast and that's okay. So then when you're looking at your priorities and you say, my top priority is debt, well, no, not really because that's not where your money is going. And so the goal is we're getting to a state of alignment, right? We're getting out of fight or flight. We're giving ourselves complete freedom to spend how we want to. But at the end of the day, understanding that what matters most is the outcome. And the outcome has to be in alignment with what we want. Because at the end of the day, I would argue that when I'm looking at two pairs of leggings, I'm looking and, and I take the time to sit down and say, okay, what's the outcome? And I know that the outcome is one, I can purchase because I've saved for it. And the other one is if I want the other one, I'm paying off less debt. That's the give and take that we're looking at, but it doesn't come from a place of restriction of I can't spend that. It comes from a place of what do I want to prioritize? Do I want to prioritize the leggings? Do I want to prioritize the debt? And taking shame out of it to where we're allowed to make either decision because when shame is out of it, we don't have restriction of screw it, I need it. Because so often when we're talking about overconsumption and overspending, especially on social media, it's because we've told ourselves, I can't spend anymore. I can't spend anymore. And then we see the ad. We see those perfect leggings and we're like, screw it. I'm doing it. I don't care. Click, click, done. It's already ordered. But what I'm saying is, what I'm arguing is, no, you don't have to say screw it. You don't have to say I can't have it. You're allowed to have it. But what are the outcomes? And is that what you want? Because if it is what you want, buy it. And if it's not what you want, okay, amazing. But you didn't make that decision from a place of I can't have it. You made that decision from a place of I can have it, but the outcome of that purchase isn't in alignment and isn't what I want. So therefore, I don't want it. So it's like we're saying the same thing. I just look at it from a very backwards way of thinking about it because I'm so anti the I can't have it mentality. I can tell why people are lining up to watch you on TikTok. I think you make a lot of sense and you make it feel like it is a very personal decision, that it's my decision, because personal finance is more personal than it is finance. You seem to have come to that realization through your struggles, but also at a younger age than most. Congrats on the book. Congrats on the podcast. Chloe, thank you so much for being here and for the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. And thank you for all that you've done for the financial industry. This is just incredible. I love your show. Thank you so much. A quick word from our sponsors. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. And we are back for our mailbag. Boy, I got to say, I wish I was as smart at 28 as Chloe Elise seems to be at 28. She's got, she's got her act together in a way that 
I don't think I had my act together until I was in my mid-30s. My daughter, Julia Chatsky, is joining us for our mailbag as usual. And Jules, I wonder, what do you think of a hack like that? Do you think that a hack like that might work? When you go into a store, do you think about, well, if I do this, then I can't do that? Or if you make a dinner reservation, because you tend to spend a decent amount of your money on experiences and on food. Do you think about, well, if we go out tonight, then I'm not going to be able to do this tomorrow? No. You don't? No. I live on the edge. Do you think that that might be helpful? Perhaps. But I also think it sounds restrictive. Yeah, I think it sounds restrictive, too. But what she was saying is that it feels the opposite of restrictive. I don't know. I'm going to give it a try the next time I go into a store. I mean, she's clearly doing something right, but I may give myself until I'm 28 to try it out. (laughs) Fair enough. Let's dig into some emails. All right. Our first question today comes to us from Brian. He writes... Dear Jean, my wife Erin and I listen to your show and really enjoy it. We listen to your podcast with Ramit Sethi. I have a question on rule two. Rule number one is straightforward. I think, just as a refresher, rule one was to have a year's salary in an emergency fund. So let's say I keep 100000 for one year emergency fund in a savings money market account. For rule two, he says, save 10% invest 20%. I did not understand this and could not find additional information on his website. Could you define exactly the difference between saving and investing? If I saved 100000 in a one-year emergency fund, is rule two saying I should put more, 10% of my earnings in this case, in that or another savings account? Why? If I've saved a good amount already, why am I putting more into a savings account? Or maybe I'm misunderstanding what savings and investing is, generally speaking. Also, how should I think about the auto deduction to a 401k in this rule? Is that investing or saving or a little bit of both? So let's say I have 100000 in a savings money market earning a modest return. I'm maxing out my 401k. I'm thinking that next I should invest, not save as much as I can. So maybe that I reach a total of 30% of earning when combined with my 401k deductions in a range of investments with different risks. Can you help me understand where slash if that differs from the save 10% invest 20% rule? Thanks so much. Thank you so much for writing. And Brian, thanks to you and Aaron for listening. I love this question because I don't rarely get asked what's the difference between saving and investing. And there is a really big difference. Saving has no risk. It's for emergencies. It's for your short-term goals, money that you need within the next three-ish to five-ish years that you are planning to use for certain things. Investing has risk. 
and it is for your longer-term goals, college for your kids, retirement for yourself, things that you are not going to need until at least a minimum of three years and maybe five years or more into the future. What I think he is saying here with rule number two, save 10%, invest 20%, is really put away 10% for those short-term goals and put away 20% for those longer-term goals. So the $100,000 that you've got in your savings slash money market account for an emergency fund is great as an emergency fund. But what other short-term goals do you have on the horizon? Are you looking to take a vacation? Are you looking to buy a house, put a down payment on a house? Are you looking to throw a big birthday party for a big milestone birthday? And are you actively saving money for those shorter-term goals? That's where the save 10% comes in. If the answer to those things is really no, and you really think that you have no other short-term needs other than potentially needing money in an emergency, then I think your way of approaching it is fine. Just heavy up on the money that you're putting into retirement accounts so that you are investing a little bit more and saving a little bit less and getting to the total of 30%. By the way, I think 30% is high. I think 30% is a little more than you need to be socking away. But I also believe that in those years of your life when you can save and invest more, you should save and invest more because you'll hit a point in life where you have other needs and other obligations and you may not be able to put away as much money. You're going to feel better about the fact that you heavied up earlier. So Brian, I hope that that makes sense. And I'm so glad that you liked listening to the show. What a loaded question, but way to answer it, mom. Thank you, Jules. All right. Should we get into the next one? Sure. Our next question comes from Jess. She writes, Hi, Jean. I have a question about credit cards. One of my credit cards has a $99 year fee, and I'm just not using it. I put everything on airline or hotel cards, but I've had this one the longest, and it has a hefty amount of available credit on it. Is it worth just continuing to pay the fee or suck it up and take the hit to my score initially? I think I know the answer to this one, but let's see. You do? You want to try to answer it? Don't cut the card, right? Close. I would say don't cut the card, except that it's costing $99 a year. And you're saying that because you've heard me for years say don't cut the card because if you've got a credit card that you've had in your wallet a very, very long time, it plays into the part of your credit score that is determined by the length of your relationships. And the longer, the better. So it's helping you in that way. It's also helping you as far as credit utilization because you've got a big credit limit on that card. So I would sort of go with an in-between solution. I would call the card company and I would ask if they have a free version of that $99 card, many of them do, that they can transfer your account to. And then I would use it 
once a month, put one automatic bill on that card and then just pay it off automatically so that they don't cancel you. One of the longest cards that I've had in my wallet canceled me just this week because I hadn't been using it. So that's how I would approach it. If they say no, they don't have a free card and you are not looking to get a big loan, a car loan or a mortgage in the next year, I really wouldn't worry about it. I'd go ahead and I would cancel the card and know that your credit score will take a hit, but it'll come back eventually. And there is absolutely no need to pay the $99 for something that you're not using. Make sense, Julia? Totally. If you've got any other money-related questions, Julia and I would love to hear from you. Just send them to us by emailing mailbag at hermoney.com. Thank you, Jules. Thanks for having me. And now we're going to take a quick break. Dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. With riveting storytelling and detailed analysis, Foul Play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life, captivating your imagination. Listen to Foul Play Crime Series now where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved. And we're back with your money tip of the week. The hiatus on federal student loan repayments is unfortunately over. If you've got federal loans, you got to get back in the habit of paying them. And chances are pretty good you're feeling confused, perhaps because you've received a new payment schedule via email from a servicer that you didn't even know existed. Here's the deal. About four in 10 borrowers' loans were transferred to a new servicer during the pause that began back in March of 2020, according to some government data. Do not panic. Here are the two important steps that you need to take to get on top of this. First, contact your servicer and do it now. Expect long wait times. They are adding staff to deal with you, but they are overwhelmed. And try to do this before your first payment deadline. If you don't know your servicer, go to studentaid.gov, the Department of Education's website. You'll be able to figure it out there. And if you're having trouble making your payments, check if you qualify for the new SAVE income-based repayment plan. It can potentially lower your payments by as much as half. To learn more about student loan repayment, listen to our bonus episode with Tara Siegel-Bernard of the New York Times. She is the best on this issue. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Chloe Elise for her philosophy on living an abundant life and saving for our goals at the very same time. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides. It's mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. And check out our new podcast. It's called How She Does It. You'll find intimate cocktail party-style conversations with today's most talented female leaders, starting with the host of that podcast, CNBC's Karen Feinerman. Our podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon. We'll be right back. 